Good evening. It's good to see you tonight. We're glad that you're here as always, and we're very thankful for this opportunity. It is a joy and a privilege to be together, one that we don't take for granted, but we're very thankful that God has blessed us with it. If you have your Bibles and you're there in Philippians, we are continuing our thoughts about Paul's perspective, and uh, that gets uh, right at the heart of the matter as we near the end of the book. He begins to talk about his relationship with the church there at Philippi. He's mentioned it earlier in the book, and the closeness that they enjoy and ultimately Paul's perspective and trying to get them to change their minds and have the right perspective. Just by way of review, a couple of quick verses. If you would, look back at chapter 1. Notice what he says early in the book relative to what he desires from them. It begins in verse number 9 where he says, "In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He opens and tells them, that's what I'm praying for you your heart, your mind, your knowledge, the ability to discern and approve things that are excellent. He says in chapter 2 and verse number 5, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That's the mindset that is going to allow them to prove the things that are excellent. Notice chapter 3 and verse number 15, where he says, Let us therefore as many as are perfect have this attitude. And if anything, he says, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also unto you. We get to this section and Paul talks about contentment, which really is our subject tonight. Paul's perspective on contentment. He's going to mention that in this section of Scripture. We'll try to move from about verse 10 down to verse number 13. And as we do that, he mentions the closeness that he has and enjoys with them. And it's kind of a situation where I don't know if you've ever had this encounter in life where you needed help. And there was somebody who loved you and wanted to help. They just couldn't. They were willing to. And they really wanted to, they just weren't able to. Paul kind of has that situation with the brethren there. They want to help him. He talks about reviving their love. They have helped him. In fact, at times they were the only ones that helped him. And Paul recognizes their inability to help him, though they have a desire. Paul talks about them, and then he talks about himself. Now, I'm in the situation, and your ability to not help me, Paul says, it didn't ultimately change or affect me in what I was able to do. So there's just this kind of backwards and forwards, at least earlier, early in this section. Note it there and listen to what he says. Within these verses, 10, 11, 12, 13, he says, you were concerned, but you couldn't help me. As he writes, he says, it's not that I'm speaking in respect of want. I'm not talking out of some, some desire that I have. That's not what I'm writing about. And then he'll say, but I have learned. So you are concerned, you couldn't help. 
It's not that I'm speaking from want, and I've learned no matter what kind of circumstances I am. That's the first sort of order. And then he does it again in verses a little later. He says, you, you were concerned, and you did, and he says again, not that I speak, and I am amply supplied. This pattern of thought can be seen in verses 10, 11, and 12. He says, you lacked opportunity, but what that did was provide me an opportunity. He says, you lacked opportunity in verse number 10, but it's not that I'm speaking from a verse or a position of want, verse 11. In fact, he says, your lack of opportunity has taught me something, and I have learned. In verses 14 to 18, if you will compare those verses to these, there he will say, you did well to share, verses 14 and 15, but he says, I wasn't seeking a gift, verse 17. And then he would say, but I am amply supplied, in verse number 18. The first thing we do tonight is just define the word contentment. When you hear it, is there a thought that comes to mind? You hear the word content or the word contentment? Don't know what jumps into your mind, but here's what the people who write the lexicon say. They say this word means to be sufficient or adequate in one's self, contented with one's lot. That's Philippians 4 and verse number 11. Another one says sufficient for one's self strong enough, or possessing enough to need no aid or support, independent of external circumstances, contented with one's lot, with one's means, though slender, competency of the necessities of life, a frame of mind, viewing one's lot as sufficient contentedness. The word doesn't appear that frequently. It appears in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse number 8, where it's translated sufficiency. And in 1 Timothy 6 and verse number 6, where it's stated that godliness with contentment is great gain. This word in verse number 11 of chapter 4 says self-satisfaction, a competency, sufficiency, Thayer says, a perfect condition of life in which no aid or support is needed. Sufficiency for the life of necessities of life, a mind contented with its lot. That's what we're talking about. That's the right perspective. Now, I will again remind you that Paul has that after being beaten, Acts 16, after being thrown into jail, Acts 16. Writing from prison, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. In there, after that, perfect condition of life in which no aid or support is needed, sufficiency of the necessities of life, a mind contented with its lot, contentment. Let's begin here in verses 10 down to verse number 13 with this first point. Paul says to the brethren there, your inability did not determine my ability. Their inability, he says, I rejoice in the Lord, verse number 10, greatly. Now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you lacked opportunity. You were concerned, but you couldn't. Your concern has revived. You lacked opportunity. Paul says, I understand that, but I'm not writing from a place of want. Your inability didn't determine my ability. That's what he is saying. In fact, earlier in the book, chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. He says, I did that. 
I'm in prison unjustly, unfairly. You want to help me, but you can't. But listen, no problem. I am sufficient right where I am. Contentment is not the result of not having. Sometimes people don't have something. They lack something, and they say, well, I'm contentment. That, that's not really how contentment works. The fact that you doesn't have, don't have something, that doesn't produce contentment. In fact, it could produce covetousness. Just because you don't have it doesn't mean you don't want it. Paul says, I'm not speaking from a place of want. I'm okay. In fact, contentment is learned, he says in the very next verse. Not that I speak in, from want, for I have learned to be content. I've learned it. Contentment is not our natural disposition. Our natural disposition seems to be, I want more. Two, three, four, five-year-olds all are content, aren't they? <laughs> 10, 11, 12, 15, 18-year-olds, all content, aren't they? 30, 40, 50, 60, all content, aren't we? No, there's a reason we have storage units. <laughs> the natural disposition seems to be, I want more, I need more, it's mine, you can't have it, I want it all. Parents try very early in life to teach us, their little babies, contentment, not the natural disposition. Paul says, I learned it. That's what contentment is. It's learned. But who will teach God's children to be content? You remember, we read chapter 2 and verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who will teach us contentment? Jesus. How will we learn it? From his example. How will we learn it? From his instruction. Luke says in Acts 1 and verse number 1 that Jesus, all that he began both to do and to teach. There's our teacher. There's our learning. What did he do? What did he teach? We are to learn from experience. How? By walking in the steps of the Savior. The Hebrew writer says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus invites, come, learn of me. Take my yoke, Peter says, following his steps. Chapter 4 and verse number 9, Paul says, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice, do these things. Someone, Jesus, is trying to teach us contentment. Paul explains contentment in the next verse, verse number 12. Contentment is explained. What does it mean? Paul says, I know. How do you know it after learning? I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. He says it again. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. It sounds like a contradiction. It sounds oxymoronic. It sounds like, well, he's just double speaking and double. Oh, no. It's a matter of perspective. Paul says, I know how to get along. I have the right perspective here. I know how to live a happy, successful, faithful, spiritual, contented life. I know how to do that with humble means. I know how to be brought low. Paul would refer to the apostles as the off-scouring of the earth. They know what it means to be low. But how we live is more accurate than what we say.
You know, the easy part of being a Christian is coming to worship and singing those wonderful lyrics about Jesus and about God, seeing each other and fellowshipping, being encouraged and giving encouragement. That's the easy part. Praying for others and participating in prayer, communing with the Lord at the supper. Dare I say it, even listening to sermons. That's the easy part. Where does it get more difficult? Leaving this building, being apart from each other, and living Monday through Saturday. Saying it is much easier than living it. What is contentment? Paul says, I know how to get along in humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity or to get along in it, to live a faithful life, happy, joy-filled life in either position, in prosperity. That's Paul's bottom line. In any and every circumstance, he says, I have learned the secret. What's the secret, Paul, of being filled and going hungry? How can you possibly do both? Of having abundance and suffering need? The answer is in having the right perspective. When I am lacking, Paul says, I know I'm full. When I have abundance, Paul says, I know I'm lacking. How does that work? There is a passage over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 22 where Paul's actually talking about the subject of marriage and saying some things that relative to how saints are to respond under the present distress, verse 26. But he says something that speaks to this very dynamic and how it works. He's talking about how people are called or in whatever state they're called. And he makes this case about people who may have been called the gospel, they may have heard the gospel, but when they heard it, they were in servitude. They were slaves. Paul says, you heard it and you were called by it. But listen to what he says. He says, for he who is called in the Lord while a slave, in the Lord, Paul says, he is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. That's what he's talking about. person could be a slave, but in Christ they have liberty, completely free. Person could be free, but in Christ you're in bondage. You're a slave to Jesus. That's the idea. Contentment comes from the right perspective. Understanding my position, no matter what my circumstances. Understanding my relationship to Christ. Contentment also comes from knowledge. Would you look over in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and listen to what Paul says there? And let me encourage you, as you read these words, just think about your life. You don't have to think about anybody else's. It was said in the prayer, how blessed we are. Consider that as we read these words together. And consider the idea of contentment and what we're talking about. Paul says in verse number 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. When it is accomplished by contentment, he says, for we brought nothing into this world. Now, I realize that at this point in your life, it's kind of hard to conceptualize nothing. But he's not asking you to consider your life right now. He's asking you to consider your life when you were born. You remember, we brought nothing into this world. And so Paul takes our attention back to our entrance. When we came, we had nothing. But then he shifts all the way over to our exit. 
He says we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. There is an entrance, you have nothing. There is an exit, you have nothing. In between, Paul says, having food and raiment, let us be there with content. To understand that properly is to understand contentment. It comes from knowledge. I had nothing, I'll leave with nothing. What do I have now? How many of us are way past food and raiment? And Paul draws the line, inspiration draws the line of contentment at food and raiment. Let us be there with content. Paul says in verse number 12, the second part of that verse, I have learned the secret of being content. I've learned it, and there's a secret. He says, I'll tell you what it is. What's the secret, Paul? It's actually throughout the entire book. It's even there in verse number 10, where Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord. Christ has been the driving force behind his perspective the entire book. If you go back to chapter 1, these are the verses you will find a reference to Christ in chapter 1. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 6, verse 8, 10, 11, 13, 14, 15, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 23, 26, 27, chapter 1. In chapter 2, I'm sorry, I missed 29 in chapter 1. In chapter 2, 2, 1, 2, 5, 2, 10, 11, 16, 19, 21, 24, 29, 30. In chapter 3, 3, 1, 3, 3, 7, 8, 9, 12, 14, 18, 20. In chapter 4, 1, 2, 4, 5, 7, 10, 13, 19, 21, 23. I have learned the secret. It's the secret, Paul. Christ. He says as much in verse 13. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. Contextually, the all things is verse 10, 11, and 12. The all things is in every circumstance. Whether rich or poor, prosperity or poverty, it doesn't matter in whatever state I am, I have learned the secret. It's Jesus I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. I can be content in any and every circumstance because I've learned the secret of being full and being hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. It's Jesus. If I have Jesus, but I lack materially, I'm in poverty. Scripture would say, I'm rich and I have abundance. If I don't have Jesus, but I have materially, Scripture would say, I'm in need because no amount of money can do for me what Jesus alone can. My perspective is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and I can have joy with much, and I can be faithful to my God. Or I can have joy with little, 
because I have Jesus. In either instance, I have Jesus. Now, it's interesting that Paul says, I have learned in whatsoever state. The reason for that is the states are not the same. If you have been poor, if you can say that, and you look back over your life, yes, we used to be poor. There was a time when we lived in poverty. If you have been poor, and now you have lived in prosperity. So we were once poor, but through hard work, ingenuity, inheritance, whatever it is, we now prosper. Then you know the states are not the same, don't you? Anybody who has been poor and has reached prosperity knows that's not the same thing. Each one of them has their own unique set of challenges, and you have to learn contentment in either. In poverty, there may be the temptation to escape poverty by doing illegal things. There may be the temptation to resort to get-rich-quick schemes. You could lose and lack contentment in poverty and give way to covetousness, become obsessed with wealth. There are challenges, Paul says, I learned it. There are some challenges. But then prosperity has its own unique challenges. And oftentimes, people think that poverty is somehow spiritual, somehow better. You know, that's more moral, that's more ethical. The poor, not at all. And so they get to prosperity, but what they fail to appreciate is it too comes with challenges. You see, in prosperity, you could become greedy. You heard about the man, maybe you heard, that couldn't wait till he made his first million. I mean, he talked about it, 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 and everybody knew, and at some point, he reached it. And they said, now, what do you want to do now? He said, I got to get to. Sometimes that's the effect of prosperity. Sometimes prosperity can make you trust in wealth as if it's your stability and foundation, and that's what you began to trust in. In prosperity, you could become unthankful. You could become ungrateful. You could forget the Lord, Deuteronomy 6. We read Deuteronomy 6, and we generally start at about verse 6, and we go down to about verse 10, 11, or 12, and we talk about teaching our children, which is exactly what we must do, and that's what that text teaches. Oftentimes, though, we stop. And after God talks about teaching your children, he then talks about making sure you remember that I gave you houses that you didn't build and wells that you didn't dig land that you didn't plant, and vineyards and olive trees, and I gave you all of that. And then he said, beware, lest when you become full, you forget the Lord. There is a challenge in prosperity. Parents know this. They know that both have their own sets of problems. Sometimes parenting in poverty means you have to say no to your children. Very little breaks parents' hearts more than to have to say, no, we can't. It means going without some things. It means they can't have everything that everybody else has, and certainly not in the same amount. That's the nature of poverty. But then prosperity, trying to parent in prosperity, it means you have the ability to say yes, but it doesn't always mean you should. Prosperity can teach children to become entitled, expecting, can prevent children from developing a good work ethic. 
because things are always given and not earned. It can create unthankfulness, ungratefulness, and unappreciative children. What's the point? Paul said, I had to learn to live in prosperity, still be faithful to God and joyous in my state. And I had to learn to live in prosperity and to rejoice and to be faithful to God and contented in my state. Our problem is we live in a nation that's prosperous. And everything in our nation tells us that's the only way to be happy. You got to get more. You got to get more. You got to get set up. And so you can only be happy if you have good health. You can only be happy if you have a nice house and a nice car and a new this and a new that. And you got to have lots of money. That's the only way to be happy. The problem is that sort of thinking does nothing to prepare you when the storms come. Maybe even worse than being in poverty and becoming prosperous is to be in poverty, become prosperous, and then go back to poverty. Our way of thinking generally doesn't prepare us for that. The sort of thinking doesn't prepare us for storms. And so we're left to ask, what will we do when the storms come? Could you possibly be contented in prison? And what if you were put there for preaching Jesus and nothing more? There are plenty of people, and I have met sadly far too many, who are really faithful to God when every single thing in their life is great. How's your marriage? Oh, man, it's wonderful. How's your spouse? He is fantastic, and she is my beloved. Man, that's great. How are your children? Ooh, Dean's List, Honor, just fantastic. I mean, the best children anybody could ever ask. How's your job? Fantastic. Love waking up in the morning, can't wait to get there. I'm there first because I'm so happy to do my job. Man, that's, what, that's what's up. Great. It's outstanding. And then a storm comes. You know, my children got into something. What happened? Yeah, I caught up with the wrong crowd. You know, I caught my spouse the other day, and they were. You know, my boss told me they're, they're going to let some people go. I used to love the Lord. I used to be faithful to Jesus, but then my, my wife was diagnosed with. My child got you know, children aren't supposed to. I can't believe God. Have we not read the Bible? Eve had two sons. She lost them both. Lot tried to save some of his family. He seemed like one who mocked. David's own son took the kingdom. His relative killed his son. You just keep marching your way through the Bible, and God is trying to tell us, if you have me, you're full, even if you lack. Paul says, I've learned it. I've learned the secret from a prison having been beaten 
There is a prayer in the book of Proverbs, and I think it encapsulates the very point we're trying to make, and he says it so well. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse number 6 and verse number 7, The warning is, do not add to his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. And then verse 7 says this, two things I have asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion that I be not full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I be not in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Whatsoever state I am in, I have learned to be content because I have Jesus. In John chapter 15 and verse number four through six, Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. If you would take that passage from Jesus over to Philippians 4 and verse 13, and Paul says, through Christ, I can do all things. Without me, you can do nothing. With me, you can do all things. If we learn the secret of contentment, it will not matter what the world throws at us, as long as we have Christ, we will be full and we will not suffer need. It might be the case that you're not a Christian tonight. And friends, if that is the case, we're going to invite you to become one, to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We say it because we mean it. There is no better life you can live than to give your life to God in service to our Lord. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God and change your heart and your mind. Repent. Confess his name and be immersed in water and let Jesus save you and wash away your sins. For those of us who are his children, our world constantly challenges our practice of our faith. Even now, we'll be challenged to be contented no matter what our state I pray that you will examine your heart, check your mind, check your state, and make sure, no matter what the world throws at us, as long as we have Jesus, we'll be content. We can help you in any way. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.